Hello and welcome to the Help Me Believe show. My name is Hayden Clark, your host, and today on the show I will be interviewing uh, world-renowned apologist and detective Jay Warner Wallace. Uh, this was a really uh, fun interview to do. I uh, really enjoyed the episode. We, uh, For the first uh, however many minutes, we just uh, talked about detective uh, stuff and of that nature, and then we finally got into some apologetics and talked about uh, the New Testament text and how it is reliable and can be defended as reliable, and this was uh, just a really insightful and uh, a, f- a fun episode to do. I really enjoyed um, having uh, Jay Warner Wallace on the show. But uh, I'll tell you a little bit about uh, Jay Warner Wallace for those of you who are, are not familiar. Uh, Jay Warner Wallace is a cold-cased homicide detective, popular national speaker, and best-selling author. He continues to consult on cold-cased investigations while serving as senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. He is also an adjunct professor of apologetics at Biola University and a faculty uh, member at Summit Ministries. Jay Warner was a conscientious and vocal atheist until the age of 35 when he took a serious and expansive look at the evidence for the Christian worldview and determined that Christianity was demonstrably true. After becoming a Christ follower in 1996, uh, Jim continued to take an evidential approach to truth as he examined the Christian worldview. He eventually earned a master's degree in theological studies from Golden Gate Baptist Theological Seminary, and he has written uh, three books, uh, Cold Case Christianity, uh, the one we're going to talk a little bit about today, God's Crime Scene, and Forensic Faith. So I'll leave uh, links in the description to those uh, works as well as to the website, but for right now, sit back and enjoy the show. Well, hello and welcome uh, to the Help Me Believe show. My name is Hayden Clark, your host. This is the show about Christian apologetics and theology. And today, my guest is a uh, world-renowned apologist, but uh, that's not the only reason he's super cool. He's also super cool because he is a real-life detective. And so it is my honor to introduce to you uh, Detective Jay Warner Wallace. How are you doing, sir? Good to be with you. Yeah, glad glad to be part of this. This is important work we're doing, trying to help the church even kind of understand why it's important to take this approach. That's half the battle, I think, right? Yes, so, sir. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on. Um, yeah. How is, uh, how's the West Coast? You're in uh, presumably California, correct? Yes, I'm between Los Angeles and San Diego, and it's been beautiful today. Uh, we had a chance to go to the beach, do a little bit of walking on the water. We just got back. So, so yeah, it's been really good here. September's a good month in uh, Southern California. Actually, pretty much every month is the same weather-wise. doesn't change a lot, but... June can be a little overcast. A lot of people come out here in June thinking, "Oh, I'll go to, I'll go to Southern California, and and our vacation starts in June. We'll just go in June." It's like the worst month yeah. to come. It's just completely overcast. Uh, but uh, September is really cool. That's good. Um, I'm in North Texas, so I feel like I should be making a Texas California joke, but nothing okay, really so, comes to well, mind. Hang on a minute. This is a good question. I want to ask you. I want to ask you. So you're in uh, North Texas. Yes, sir. Um, are you close to Dallas? Uh, an hour north, so I'm as far north as you can go without being in Oklahoma. Okay, got it. But right okay. up, right up 35, just an hour north. Yep. Excellent. Yeah, my dad is, uh, you know, he's in northeast Texas by Mount Pleasant. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, no, that is. Yep. Yeah, so I'll be there next week, as a matter of fact. Yeah, that's yeah, what good. I was going to ask you. Is I saw something on social media. I think. Uh, I yeah, well, I'm in, so- I'm in Houston uh, this weekend on Sunday. Uh, for uh, at Spring, Texas, actually just north of Houston, um, for uh, just the church services that that Sunday morning, and then I usually, if I'm that close to my dad, I just drive up and and get over there so I can see him. So yeah, it's just an excuse. Sometimes this feels like an excuse just to 
to to take an extra day and uh, sneak over there. And I'll, if I'm within five or six hours, I'll drive up to see him. So it's good. Yeah, that's great. Okay, yeah. so uh, let's uh, jump right into things, if you don't mind. Okay. Uh, for those who aren't familiar with you, if you don't mind giving us a little bit of a, a, a brief bio, kind of who you sure. are, who you are, and what you do. Well, um, I'm uh, I work cold case homicides. Those are just um, the old, when we talk about cold cases, we really are talking about homicides because everything else has a statute of limitations. It, it can't go cold because at some point they'll just close it because yeah, the limitation sense. has run out and you can't prosecute it after a certain number of years. But that is not the case for homicides. Those stay open. And uh, because they stay open, uh, we can come back years later. And so I'm, I was started, we opened in 2003, We 15 years ago now, wow. We started looking at a lot of our unsolved. And we had 30 that we thought were, were things we could start to, to investigate and toy with. And uh, ultimately, that led to me opening up a cold case unit, and I, you know, did a bunch of these, and I still have a couple that are unsolved that need to be finished. We've got one that I did some work on that we'll probably work on again in November. So, you learn a certain skill set doing this. Um, that believe it or not, transfers uh, to what we're doing here. Mm-hmm. I, I was not a Christian growing up, but at 35, I was uh, interested in just kind of. Well, my wife got me interested in looking at this because she wanted to go to church. And uh, I decided, sure, uh, I'll go with you. And, and um, she finally talked me into going, and then I got interested in seeing what this pastor was mm-hmm. talking about. He, he he described Jesus as this really smart guy, um, and that was enough for me to be interested. So I bought a Bible, and I started to use the skill set I had working cold cases and working really any investigations. At that time, I wasn't really working cold cases. Um, but I, I just pressed into service those skills that we use to determine when someone's telling us the truth. And I tried to do that with the scripture, and that's really how I became a Christian. Yeah, that's such an interesting story. Uh, see, I didn't actually know this. Um, I thought that uh, you used to be a detective, and now you were a Christian apologist. But you're actually, you are, just to clarify, still a detective as well, correct? Well, so I here's, here's the beauty of it. Um, when I retired, um, I retired. So that okay. means for me that anything I do going forward, I don't really want to get paid for. Um just because number one, it's 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 difficult in your retirement to manage all the numbers and that, and how how much the agency can hire you back. But even more importantly, it gives me the freedom to to do what I love to do, uh, just because I love to do it, rather than mm-hmm. make a living doing it. So that also gives me the freedom, though, to say, you know, I'm not available this month. Right. I'll be traveling yeah. all month, and I've got I can do both. Then, so by, because I re, I won't take a, a salary. Uh, I can come in, step in, and step out, and and for the most part, I've been out. I've been doing doing this. I've been uh, making a case for why Christianity is true, making a case for God's existence, even making a case for why we should make a case. <laughs> so I've correct, been spending yeah. time doing that. Uh, really, is ninety five percent of all that I do. But I do see that a couple of these cases, if I don't jump back in pretty quick, I'm not going to be able to jump back in at all. So uh, there's a, a timer, you know. And I've got a partner that I had for ten years who's also starting to feel like there's a couple of these cases he'd like to, to finish. Mm-hmm. So I want to be able to respect that too. So I'm probably on the verge of, of doing a, a hiatus. Uh, when, you know, you can do a lot of things at the same time, so it's not like you have to do one or the other. That's right. But I probably will re-engage some of those cases for sure. Okay, that's clarifying because I was thinking he's still a detective and he's doing all yeah, this traveling uh, as an apology. I was thinking, man, I yeah. want to know what that guy's uh, time schedule is like because i well, got to learn that trick. Yeah, cause it was crazy because for a lot of the, uh, the time when I was a detective, I was doing both mm-hmm. things, and I was you know pastoring and uh, I finished seminary and did all that while I was still a detective, and those were some crazy years. But I always feel like hey, you know, 
when I started seminary, I was probably 36 or 37. Okay. Probably a couple of years after becoming a believer, I, I felt like I, I wanted to jump in and, and learn all I could learn. And and when you do that, you have to think, well, gosh, how am I going to do this and, and still do my job? And, and you know, I'm on a homicide team that you don't have any control over your schedule. Right. If, if a murder occurs, you just have to go. Uh, and it could be on any time of the day or night. Uh, but at the same time, you know, it might take you, let's say it takes you seven or eight years. And it took me, I think, seven years to get a seminary degree. But if you look at it and think about it, you know, seven years are going to go by whether you do the degree or not. Exactly. You're yep. seven years older, so you might as well just start chipping at it. And that's what I did. Yeah, that's kind of how I view, I've viewed education as well. Um, yep. One more question before we get into Christian yeah. uh, case making and, and, and yeah. the, that nature of questions. What, what made you want to be a, a detective? Well, my dad was a police officer, so um, we've been at the same agency. Um, so he started in 1961. I was born during his academy, and I think I was born maybe the eighth or ninth week of his academy, and it's like I think a 16 week back then on his day. Uh, and then, so I grew up with this patrol officer, then became a sergeant, a detective, and then became a sergeant, and and I saw his life, um, uh, just what the job meant to him. Mm-hmm. My dad's one of those true believers you know he's that the job has been really good to him it gave him purpose he he loved what he did um and he never felt like he was working he felt like he was playing all the time because he just loved the job um so i saw that growing up and although i was trained in the arts i was an illustrator a designer then an architect before i became a police officer so i have a master's degree from ucla in architecture but i i even while I was getting the master's degree and I was working in a firm in Santa Monica, I could feel the call, you know, yeah. kind of watching that. And so I, ultimately I graduated from UCLA on a Sunday. It was a three-year program, 128-unit program. And so I graduated the master's degree on a Sunday and I was in the academy on Monday morning. Um, wow. And so I just hit the ground running and I was uh, graduated by October of that year. And then in my academy... My son was born, um, and he is now working at the same agency. Yeah, that's what, yeah. I was going to ask about seven, that too. Yeah. For seven years, so we've had three guys named Jim Wallace <laughs> uh, that have worked at that agency since 1961. So for 57 years, we there's been somebody there. I, I'm, when I was working, I would get phone calls on cases, and uh, they would say, "Dude, are you still working?" You're talking about my dad, okay? I'm his son. Yeah. But I think now if somebody, there's nobody alive probably who would say to my son, thinking it's my dad. Yeah. But uh, we recently had photos taken. Uh, we're working on a project together. And so we all got back in uniform uh, and took a few pictures. And it is funny to see. Yeah, that, know, was, that, the, that was the picture I saw. I was uh, wondering about that. So so yeah. when your yeah. when your son becomes or decides that he wants to kind of follow in the footsteps, is it like a... I'm proud of you, or is it like, no, please do something else because you well, because you know what it's like and that sort yeah. of thing. No, I, I it never it was never I never felt like it was the kind of thing that I would would warn people against or yeah. away from. Um, I thought it was very noble work. I did it for a lot of years before I was ever a, a Christian, and I felt like it was a calling even before I really had a sense of what a divine calling mm-hmm. is. Um, and I felt like it was really worth doing, and and also he. His interest is in behavior and psychology. He has a bachelor's degree from UCLA in psychology. And so his thing was he's interested in what drives people to do certain things. Right. 
and kind of the psychological aspect of it. And, and this was a good place for him to land if that, that was his uh, interest. So I think he's just begun to scratch the surface. You know, there's a, a, a um, an evolution of officers. When you become an officer, you're going to spend time in patrol. So you don't just hop in and become a detective. That's something you'll probably do 10 years into your career because you'll spend a lot of time doing all the things you have to do to pay your dues before you get that opportunity. And so he's right, you know, he's going through that that process. He's I think he's pretty well respected though. And and he is now a training officer. So his job is to bring in new recruits and we have a seven month training program and he'll have them for one of those seven months. And uh, I think he's he'll do a better job than my dad and I did, I think for sure. Because he's wired differently than we are. Um, and he's just really energetic and as just having a great time doing it, I think he'll do great. But but yeah, I never worried about his safety. Um, even now, I mean, I'll say to him, "Hey, you know, I'm always reminding him of how I would do things to be safe." <laughs> but the reality of it is that you know everyone dies, and when you work the jobs that we work, we get to see how people die, and uh, we get called out to all kinds of crazy death scenes, suicides, accidental deaths that, in some ways, are very embarrassing. There are lots of embarrassing ways to die. Um, where you didn't think you were going to die doing this, and then sure enough, you end up dead, and I got to come in and look at the scene. Uh, so because we see how people die, yeah. I, I, but my sense is that if you die in the service of your country or your community, well, everyone dies. And we've seen some pretty ignoble ways to die. It's like this is a pretty so, noble way, yeah. Yeah, this is a good way to die. So so because of that, I felt like, hey, you know, I don't worry about him. Well, that's really awesome, and uh, I do want to say to you, your father, your son, and everybody in the service, uh, thank you uh, uh, so much for your service. We really do appreciate it. Oh well, of course. I mean, a lot of this we don't feel like we, we it's we feel like the military is another category of service, right? But mm-hmm. but there is. I always tell people when you're doing this job, and my son is experiencing this now. You're you're constantly stuck between the two horns here of this dilemma, which is one, you're called to do something that you think might ultimately involve a sacrifice, perhaps your life. But you know that's what you signed up for. You, you're this. You're that's what you, you're here to do. You're here to serve your community, even if it means that the ultimate sacrifice. At the same time, you want to go home to your kids tonight, right. and your wife, and you want to get home. So you're in in any moment of of panic or crisis, or where you have to make a quick decision, you're always battling those two desires you have. Do what I know I'm called to do. I get that, but I just saw my wife 35 right. minutes, three hours ago, whatever it was. I'd sure like to see her again. And that, I think, is the the spot that we put people in when we ask them to make these kinds of really difficult, quick decisions. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's a whole other issue. Right. Yeah. Yes, of course. Well, um, again, thanks so much. Uh, sure. I, I want to build a picture of kind of what led you from what you described in the book as an angry atheist and mm-hmm. to now a Christian casemaker. And uh, so when I've been... Uh, listening, kind of keeping up with um, uh, yourself and, and other um, apologists as well for a long time, but uh, I don't always read the book. I just kind of, I, I listen sure. to a lot of YouTube videos, podcasts, different things, so yep. I feel like I've read the book because I listen so much to you guys, but then when I actually do read the book, there's so much more in there, and, and it's great to actually get in there and read that. So go read the books, actually, people. But um, That's the tricky part, right? I mean, that's what you said. Funny you should say that because we are in a culture right now where so much we make available um, by just by you know, clicking on this link, and you can watch the whole thing. But yeah. but you know that every time we – if we're going to write – when you write a 48,000-page book, 
mm-hmm. uh, for eight thousand word book. Could you imagine? That would be that'd be a great. Word book. Yeah, then uh, you know that you're going to be able to go into a certain level of depth. And anytime you're just doing a quick three minute video, you're doing your best to encapsulize this, mm-hmm. right? But the reality is, you thought this was important enough to give it that many words. And that is probably the best way. So I hope that people, yeah, I mean, it's like, it's not about sales. It's really about why, because why do we do this? I mean, I, I had a whole career. I've got a pension. It's not about the money. It's about, well, this is really true. And I feel like I was behind the curve by 35 years and I wanted to catch up and help others do the same. And, but yeah, you can't get it all right. I mean, we try, we yeah. look, we've done, we'll do one hour presentations, but that's not going to capture more than one chapter of the book. Right. That's what typically it does. It gives you one chapter. Um, so, yeah. Um, so in the book, just right out of the bat, my, uh, my attention was just grasped and just, uh, really gripped me was this uh, story you told of a, uh, a friend of yours who was, uh, a shot in the line of duty and, um, he, he lived or I do, I want to get that out of, out of the way. I wouldn't be talking about it if it wasn't the case. And so if you don't mind, can you kind of recall that and how it, led to this distinction that you made that I thought was interesting between belief that and belief in. Yeah, and I I actually had that originally at the end of the book, and my editor said, you know, let's move that to the front. Um, To do exactly what it did to me. Yeah, I was trying trying to make a point about something else at the end, and and, because I realized when it happened, I was working, when you were commissar in our agency, you also work OISs, those are officer-involved shootings. And that means that any time an officer discharges a weapon and hits someone, um, you have to go out and investigate to make sure that all the protocol was in place beforehand. And if it's not, to document it, to make sure that the right things are afterwards. And so I get called out one night because this officer had pulled over a drunk driver. He thought it was a drunk driver. And uh, he gets a guy out of the car and realizes this is a parolee. Um, who was a much different character than he thought that he was drunk, but he knew he had a handful. And uh, the parolee also was carrying a gun, unbeknownst to the officer. And in our state, back in those days, I'm a little bit different now, but it used to be that if you were caught with a gun, you'd do a year. Uh, and so this guy knew that just having possession, a parolee with a gun, would put him in, in jail for a year. And he had just come out of jail. Hmm. He was on parole. He didn't want to go back, so he decided as this officer was getting him out of the car that if it came down to it and the officer was going to discover this gun on his on him, he was going to have to kill the officer rather than go back to jail. And, of course, that was eventually going to happen if he he's going to be arrested for drunk driving. Uh, so he really made a decision pretty early, I think, that he was going to kill the officer. Mm. As a matter of fact, as the officer got ready to do what we call an FST, which is a field sobriety test, he told this guy to, to turn away from him so he could do a pat-down search because he had a suspicion this guy was the kind of guy who would probably be carrying a gun. Mm-hmm. And as this uh, driver turned away from the officer, he turned around immediately and pointed the gun at the officer's chest. And so the officer knew that he had kind of been caught off guard. Um, and he didn't have his hand on his gun yet. He didn't have his gun drawn for sure. And this guy's already pointing a gun at him. Yeah. Um, now I, I go to these scenes after the fact. And so clearly the guy survives it because he's talking to me about it. Right. And I have to kind of assess and go through the shoot scene and I can see everywhere where the, where the bullets are hitting the ground, where the bullets are hitting uh, you know, the car, where the bullets are hitting everything. And I'm looking at all that and, and I'm listening to his story and, you know, he like like me. We we know that that we wear equipment that'll help us, and we both know we're wearing bulletproof vests when we work. Uh, they're small Kevlar vests that fit underneath our uniforms, and 
they're, they're really helpful, of course. And we've seen them stop bullets. We put them on the range on our, our targets and we put them down downfield and we'll shoot them up close. We'll shoot them at 10 yards. We'll shoot them at five yards just to see if bullets will penetrate the vest. And, and we discover pretty quickly they don't. They don't. I mean, that actually does its job. Yeah. Now, it's going to hurt. It's right. going to push the vest in. It's going to feel like you've been hit with a sledgehammer, but, but it's not going to penetrate the vest. Um, and, and so as he stood there facing this um, suspect who had already had the, the gun drawn on him, he, he decided, I, you know what, I don't have time to do much. I could, he could try to like jump to the side or he was too far away to do like a takeaway maneuver. Mm -hmm. So he was just stuck. And he said, I just decided I'm just going to tense my stomach muscles and take the first couple of rounds and, until I get my gun out and return fire. Which, if you think about it, is a crazy, and this is all happening in a millisecond, right? Right, but, it's happening real time, what, yeah. Yeah. And I always, I thought when I was standing there, because by this time I was already a Christian, and I remember standing there listening to his story and thinking to myself, man, that is that defines for me the difference between believing that something is true and believing in something. Right. And he moved in that one second from one to the other. And what's interesting about that is that all of us want to be able to have a faith, to have that kind of faith, right? right? Belief in, not just believe that. And I think it's belief in that truly saves you, trusting that thing to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And, but how do we get there, right? Well, one of the ways he, I think if he didn't know, if he had not seen the vest stop bullets, he would not have stood still. Right. Yep. So there is a connection between your level of evidential, um, certainty and your level of commitment in a time of crisis for sure yeah and that happens for a lot of us and i've heard other philosophers and apologists talk about you know this idea that hey if you can know something is true at a point of intellectual uh, certainty and that's different for every person i get that but the point is if you can be certain intellectually that something is true it will help you in a time of right. crisis when you feel like you want to jettison it Mm -hmm. But you know better because you had, and this is what was happening to him. So I, I, I say the same thing for young people, is, especially in, in high school years, is we have to get to a place because someone's going to push that, that button. Someone's going to do something that's going to shake your try or to potentially could shake your faith. And that's why I think it's so important for us to know that the, the vest stops bullets, yeah. to see that first. And then when you come to that period of crisis, you're like, hey, I've already been there, done that. I already know this can do the job. I'm just going to be calm and still, mm -hmm. and I'm not going to panic. And so that's, I think that for me was a good illustration. Just yeah, to, I, think a, a, I think it's a, I think it's a a pretty perfect illustration. Um, it really resonates with me. Uh, I had that moment when I was actually in seminary uh, studying theology, and so I'm, I find myself studying all these courses like uh, systematic theology, hermeneutics, church yes, history, yes. all these different things. Mm. But they all assume that the propositions of Christianity are true. And then we're going from there and delving yes. in deeper, uh, so to speak. And uh, so the problem was they were just assumptions for me. I had never do uh, dove into um, apologetics and philosophy, that sort of stuff. Um, obviously my professors and, and those classes weren't assuming them, but I was. Yes. And uh, so and yeah. then it really shook me like you were talking about. So I did dive in and uh, stumbled across uh, um, guys like you and, and other apologists. And um, what I found was exactly what you're talking about. That's why I think it's such a perfect illustration is that once I, 
I could actually uh, wrestle with these pop, uh, propositions that God exists, Jesus rose from the dead, the Bible is God's word, and come to um, come to them intellectually, then it actually strengthened my faith, and I wanted to dive back yes. into those other areas of study and dive back into God's word and study and, and grow closer to Jesus because it's actually true. Is, is what I was finding. Yeah. I think a lot of people don't realize how difficult seminary can be uh, in that sense. That, yeah. Um, it can it can actually, in some ways, it can, so, so, so imagine that you are, you like something so much that you will um, find yourself doing it in your spare time. Well, then seminary comes along. That thing that I was doing for two hours a day, it now becomes what I have to do because I got a paper due on Friday. Exactly. And in some ways, it kind of robbed. I mean, I would I'd spend time in scripture every. I mean, I'd be like, it's ridiculous. Okay, mm -hmm. and I loved it. And I was discovering things that I thought were just really kind of cool things, using forensic statement analysis, doing all this stuff in scripture. Well, then I entered seminary, and I was like, I, was, I still wanted to read, but now I have to read, and for this narrow uh, range for this very narrow purpose mm -hmm. of writing a paper for a class. And I will tell you, I thought in some ways it, it kind of started to steal the um, the joy I used to have, you know, I was willing to do it for nothing. Yeah. And now I had to do it because I had a paper coming. And so I don't know. I think it's hard for some of us. That's a it, common it issue. Your focus. Yeah. yeah. I hear that a lot. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> so what, uh, so that illustration you said, um, uh, became apparent to you, you were already a Christian. So what caused you initially to uh, even investigate the claims of Christianity? And then, and then what was it that pushed you into belief? Right. So I, I think that, that, that belief, that, that part right. where you, that part. you can, you're sure that the, but the vest can stop bullets, that, 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 that was easier. And that took about six months for me. Once I started investigating the, the new Testament, really the gospels, um, uh, if you think about it, the theology that flows out of the life of Jesus and, and his ministry is really in the letters. But uh, whether or not it's true is going to be found in the Gospels, because there's there's some claims there uh, that are grounded in historical events, allegedly grounded in historical events. And so uh, I spent a lot of time in the Gospels just uh, because it appeared that and the reason why I always did that at all is just because, you know, Susie wanted to um, she thought she had been raised in a culturally Catholic setting and when we started having our kids, she felt like, well, shouldn't we be doing something, raising them with some beliefs? And I volunteered, what, what, hey, they're, they are being raised with my beliefs because I have no, I have no beliefs about God. But I, I also love Susie, and I wanted to make sure that she got to raise the kids also the way that she thought it was best. And so I said, I was fine going to church mm -hmm. if you want to go to church. And my dad still does that. He'll go to church with you uh, as a non-believer. Uh, because he thinks it has value, uh, and he's seen the value it has in raising kids and in and establishing a culture that he loves to live in. Uh, so I, I went to church with her, and, and this pastor was just uh, very much uh, followed a kind of a seeker-sensitive model where he assumed every week that there were going to be people in that room who were not believers. Um, and so always he would say something. He would He would make sure his words were couched in a way that, that they were at least open um, and were available to those of us who are not believers. And I didn't know that's why we were going. Yeah. I, I'd never stepped foot in that church before, and I had never really never stepped foot in a church of any kind except if Susie was driving, you know, dragging me to a performance yeah. or, or as a wedding or as a funeral. Uh, aside from that, I had no interest. But we went, and uh, he he did 
talk about Jesus as this really smart guy who whose moral teaching was so far ahead of its time that it established the foundation for Western civilization. And I thought, okay. It's worth investigating. Uh, yeah, it's worth – so I bought a Bible. Yeah. I bought a really inexpensive pew Bible. I think I spent five or six bucks on it. Um, I didn't know anything about translations, mm. didn't know anything about anything. But I, I bought that Bible and started reading through it and um, right away became interested in trying to get back to original languages as much as I could, not being somebody who had studied the original languages. But just there was enough this – was, this was probably at the very beginning of the Internet age, and there was some software available but not a lot, and but there were books, lexicons that were out there that I was able to kind of, so I just tr did my best to see what they were telling me. I thought I was going to open up scripture and it would be more like proverbial statements, right. you know, more like um, Proverbs right. or like uh, the writings of Baha'u'llah, the Baha'i prophet, or wh where I would just be assessing these claims because this guy says this dude's really smart. Okay, fine. But what I find is that that there's actually historical narratives that are claiming something happened in real time and in a real place and in a real sequence of events with real people. And well, that's that's something that now I was I was really interested because that's often what my casework is like, because you're looking at an event that any crime that you investigate as an event in the past. It can be an event that's two hours old, two days old, two weeks old, in my case, 35 years old. If it's you know if it's a, a, a cold case homicide, and so there's a skill set you can put into place when you're assessing reports related to eyewitness accounts that are old, and I just started to apply those to the Gospels, and that's why after about six months I was really probably at that belief that stage right. where I was like okay, I remember telling Susie I, I I think this is I think if you asked me I would say I believe these are reporting something true. Right. But I don't get the whole dying on a cross thing. Do you right. get that? I was like, you know, do, I don't, even if it was true, I don't understand because I didn't, I, I wasn't looking at the theology of it. I wasn't, I was simply trying to assess the claim. The problem mm -hmm. is if you think these are telling you something true, then you're stuck with the dude who comes out of the grave. Right. And then what are you going to do with this guy? Mm -hmm. And so then I'm trying to process what this all means. And I mean, it was a lot, lot longer process than that because a, a part of that is, uh, that search was to, to I have such ingrained naturalistic tendencies that I rejected anything supernatural. If you can't explain it with space, time, matter, physics, and chemistry, I'm not interested. Um, that's really where I was for a long time. And I had to kind of figure out if that, if, if my naturalism was well-grounded. And so that's, that's in a book called God's crime scene, which right. is really the way. So I'm kind of doing these two, two things uh, parallel. And, uh, but in the end, I had to move toward belief in, and I, I kind of put it this way. You know, for example, I spent 90% of my time in those first six months in the Gospels. I mean, I'm just, I mean, I've read the, the letters, but I would go back to the Gospels, yeah. pick, 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 pick. What is that word in the original language? Where is that word? Where else is that word used by that author? Uh, how does he, you know, I'm not really trying to get to this, to the, to, the, that, to the, the meaning, you know? Is that specifically because they're the eyewitnesses? Is the, is that kind of yeah? I think because yeah, I, I was not interested in the inference from the observation. Right, right. From the... I was interested in the observation because mm -hmm. I won't ask it. So, so for example, if you were in, in trial and you had somebody who saw this thing go down, uh, you would say in trial, okay, what did you see him do? 
But you wouldn't be able to ask, what do you think he meant? Right. So because now you're making an inference that you don't you can't read his mind. All you can report is the witnesses. What did he do? Yeah. So now, what you see in the letters is what does this all mean yeah, for us? That's what I was going to say. But, yeah. So I'm not interested in that yet. You know. So Paul's but kind after, of a secondary. Uh, well, he's an eyewitness. Well, he's an eyewitness you know, from on the road to yeah. Yes, on the road to Damascus. But but and you know you got other letters, Peter from John from you know there's other letters of people who knew Jesus personally. That that's but again, what their focus is is not to report yep. the data. Their focus there is to report what does the data mean. Okay, so yeah, that's a difference and, in the genre than from the like you yes. said a historical narrative, where as that's a, right. yeah, gotcha. That's right. So so uh, now though that I get to a point where I'm like, okay, I think this this happened. Mm-hmm. Well, now I'm interested in hearing what what the interpret what what does this mean for me? What the inferences are. Yep. Yeah, and so I always say that if you read and investigate the evidence in Scripture and what it says about Jesus, you will end up where I ended up. You'll have belief that. But if you're willing to look and investigate the Scripture to see what it says about you, you will transition to belief in. Mm-hmm. Because it's only when I read what it, how it described me, and I realized, yeah, that's true. That's who I am. Uh, I was at a point where I could recognize that this is telling the truth not only about Jesus, but the truth about me, my need for a Savior, and the identity of the Savior. Good timing, because one solves the other, and I end up becoming a Christian. Very interesting. Has anyone ever pointed out the uh, similarity between the world's uh, most renowned apologists, how it all started with a godly woman dragging their butt to church. Cause I think it's, I know, <laughs> it's, I know, right? it's like that's, the same story for Lee Strobel. I just watched the, that yeah. movie and that's kind of yeah. where it starts for him too. Yeah. You know, what's interesting about that is that, so Leslie, Lee's wife is, if you've ever met her, she is top drawer. Okay. She's just amazing. Yeah. Um, and, and Lee was really adamantly so she was adamantly in she was she was really in the and she was a christian yep and and lee was adamantly out and so for me it was a little bit different susie was did she became a christian when i became a christian Mm -hmm. so she was just thought that we should do this like a cultural thing i think she probably would have been fine if i would have said i'll go with you every sunday but never did any more than that Mm -hmm. um uh, but but for because she was more like a cultural more like a yeah a part of the fabric of family um but and I was not at, I was not trying to, to prove it wrong. I thought it was so utterly absurd that there's no point in making an effort to prove it wrong. Right. I'm not spending time disproving Santa Claus either. It's just yeah. so obvious on its face that it's not worthy of my attention. That was really the view that I thought I held. So I was different than Lee. Like he's out there trying to. Really yeah, he's trying actively to say, trying to prove it wrong. Here's yeah. why you should not believe this, Leslie. And and I was not that. I mean, I was just. And then and then you're. Slowly, Becoming convinced, you know. And then you're a detective, but he was a um, investigative journalist, right? Journalist. Yeah. Yep, so that's kind right. of some similarity there yeah. as well. Anyway, just some yeah, things yeah, I true. noticed. Uh, yeah. You kind of mentioned uh, this already. You said, uh, believe it or not, there's actually some similarities between investigating the eyewitnesses and in your profession, and then also investigating the um, historical narratives as eyewitness accounts as well. Can you kind of uh, describe what are, what are those crossovers or, or what, what tools right. do you, you use in investigating eyewitnesses as in, in your profession and how do they cross over into investigating the New Testament? Right. So, so I, I have a cases that uh, my cold cases are all events in the past. I don't have any living eyewitnesses usually. Well, I don't have any 
there were never eyewitnesses to begin with who could identify a suspect who saw the thing happening. That's why it's cold. Right. We have lots of cases with eyewitnesses, they get solved. But the ones that we don't get solved are there for a reason. And, and so I don't have those kinds of cases. I don't have cases with a living eyewitness. I don't have cases in which I have good forensic evidence. I can't solve them with DNA, can't solve them with fingerprints. Those aren't the kinds of cases I work. So I have to do them a different way. And it's basically by assessing all the other circumstantial little bits and pieces that assemble together in a cumulative case. Well, that's very similar to working the Gospels because you don't have any access to the witnesses. You don't have any forensic evidence you can use. You have this event in the past, and you've got to do your best to assemble a circumstantial case cumulatively to decide if something is true. And a lot of this is going to come down to uh, to to really um, – assessing what are the records you have. So, so it's not unusual for me to have a report from 1972. Uh, somebody says they saw a car parked out in front of the location prior to the crime. Well, guess what? That witness is now dead. And the person who interviewed that witness is probably also dead or really old. So, so I'm going to have to make a decision about whether this claim is true without access to the report writer and without access to the person he's writing about. And that's very much what we do with the Gospels. You're not going to have access to the writers. You may not even know much about the writers. Um, and you're not going to have access to what they're writing about. You can't, you know, if they describe someone in the Gospels, you can't go interview that person. So you get, and you don't have any forensic evidence. You're not going to make this case with DNA or fingerprints. It's all going to come down to the same approach. Part of it is going to be us assessing whether or not that report is reliable. And we do this with every eyewitness the same way. And there's four criteria. Was the person who said he saw something, was he really there? Because people will say stuff and they weren't even there. Right. And so you have to figure that out. Two, can you corroborate his claims, even though the corroboration is probably not going to be as much as you might like? So all corroboration is touch point. So if you said, hey, I saw this dude go in the bank and he leaned over the counter and he stuck a gun in that lady's face and he yelled at her. Okay, great. Uh, I go back. I go to the counter. I, I dust it for prints. I find there's a palm print that matches the suspect that you described, right? The same guy we're talking about. And sure enough, it's right where you said he leaned on the counter. So that's that, that corroborates his statement. Yeah. But, but that little palm print will not tell you if he carried a gun. Right. That was one of the claims. It won't tell you what he said. That was one of the claims. In other words, corroboration always gives you a small fraction gotcha. of what the overall statement is. And we look at that and we say, that's okay. I mean, I think we, I've done this in front of juries, and they're very quick to say, oh, yeah, I think he's been corroborated. Even though the thing that, 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 that corroborates him is very small percentage mm -hmm. of what his claim is. So I'm looking for that kind of corroboration. I call that touch point corroboration. It just touches on the key points of the of the testimony. It won't cover all of it. Third, you know, has he changed his story? Uh, has he been honest and accurate consistently over time, or has that been kind of wobbly? And then third, uh, fourth, uh, does he have a bias that would cause him to lie? So those are the four criteria, and we have those in our jury instructions. So we don't just pick a jury. We pick a jury, and then we inform, we instruct them because a jury that doesn't understand how evidence comes together and what rules of evidence are is not going to help you. You have right. to have a jury that at least knows enough about the rules of evidence. To I talk about this in a book called Forensic Faith, and you have to kind of get people ready to hear the case. They don't just we don't just throw it on them without any way of, of of processing and thinking rationally about evidence. So we have jury instructions, and that's the criteria we use in the jury instructions. So those four areas are what I focused on as I went through the Gospels. And try to determine if they were reliable. So, um, just to take one of those 
because it's kind of a common um, accusation made against the Bible is is the bias okay. one. So why were why were the New Testament writers or, or the gospel writers um, not biased? Well, it doesn't, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't just outright just say they're not, they're not okay. biased. I mean, we have to test that. Um, first of all, the fact that they have an opinion or they have a belief system in place uh, is not necessarily a, necessarily a bias that would cause them to to lie. So every juror we put in panel, we in panel, we we ask them. They, we know they all have beliefs, they all have opinions, they all have his personal histories, and they don't. Those aren't. They're not clean slates when they sit in right. that jury box. And we ask them about that during board hour. We'll we'll ask a series of questions before we'll impanel a jury. And 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 but we know in the end we're going to ask them, are you willing to suspend whatever bias you have in order to because we know they have them right? <laughs> are to do this fairly. And you know, like for example, if. Um, you know, you 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 hate guys with beards because you had a bad problem with one of your neighbors who had a beard. Well, now my suspect's got a beard, my defendant. So, are you going to be able to step across this, or is this beard going to be an issue for you? You know, yeah. and then they'll say, "Oh no, I can handle that, no problem." Well, then we got to figure out: is he telling us the truth? And then the defense attorney will decide if he's going to put that guy on the jury. So, so we always have something we have to overcome. But I do know this: in the end. Um, bias comes down to what motivates you to, to do something you shouldn't do. If that's make a decision you shouldn't make, or if that is for you to, to lie. So if we're saying that the writers of any historical account are biased, what we're really talking about is are they motivated right. to say something they shouldn't say, something that isn't true, to do something they shouldn't do. And all of that motive comes down to three there are only three overarching motives for any misbehavior, only three. And you learn these working cases. Um, these are also in the Bible, but but I didn't have a Bible when I first started right. working as a detective. But I could see the motives behind any crime, behind the same things behind a murder. There are the same things behind a theft. There are the same things behind a lie, that behind any sin anyone has ever committed. There's only three things that drive them, and that is financial greed, sexual lust, and the pursuit of power. Those are the only three motives for any misbehavior. And when people say, oh, I can think of a fourth, you're wrong. There's not it can four, be reduced, there's just yeah. three. Yeah. I had someone email me today and say, well, what about somebody who just wants prestige? Well, that's power. It's a subset of power. That pursuit of power is nuanced, and it can, it can include a lot of subsets, right? So if you've been disrespected, and you shoot somebody because they disrespected you, this happens a lot in gang in gang violence I've worked over the years. But what's that? That's pursuit of power. That's like you, I, my authority and respect has been challenged. Uh, fame, seeking fame, prestige. These are all nuanced issues related to power. So, so they all fall. Like, well, how about vengeance? Well, what are you vengeful about? What are you feeling vengeful about? Well, that's one of those three things. Yeah. Well, what about jealousy? Well, what are you feeling jealous about? It's yeah. going to be one of those three that's things. Mean, it yeah. always comes back to now. You might see a fourth category is crazy, but if you're uh, if you're criminally insane and we find you to be criminally insane, we're not going to prosecute you. I'm talking about those motives that are prosecutable. Now, I'll tell you this. Um, such a small percentage of people are ever uh, determined to be criminally insane. It's, 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 an, it's an unbelievably small percentage. I mean, people do crazy things all the time. Does not mean they're crazy. They're people crazy. who are not yeah. crazy are capable of doing crazy things. And mm -hmm. judges get that. And very few are ever deemed criminally insane. Instead, they're tried, even though they might be, you know, killing people and eating their bodies afterward. That sounds crazy. Well, no, th those people, um, they're going to be tried. Right. Uh, 
and so in the end, it's going to come down to one of those three things that drives uh, bad behavior. And so that's what helps us because then we can say, well, are these authors biased? Well, does Joseph Smith, and when create, writing the Book of Mormon, possess any of those motives? Yeah, he possesses all three. Um, he was paid by his. He, he became supported by the church. He 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 consistently borrowed money from his con his congregants. He he even established a bank on the basis of his uh, followers' money. Um, there was a, there was a financial motive. Doesn't mean that he's lying. It just means that he had the motive to lie. Right. Not only that, he he wrote scripture that allowed him to to be wedded to over thirty women right. that he consummated their relationship with, some of whom were married to other people. Uh, so it also satisfied the second motive. And third, he, he at one point ran for he, he announced his as running for presidency. He had the largest standing army on the North American continent, other than the American army. Uh, and this is a guy who had power and position and had sexual uh, 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 motives and had financial motives. Uh, now, again, it doesn't mean he's lying, but he certainly had some motive to lie. Now, if we're going to ask this question of the authorities related to, to Christian scripture, we got to ask, well, what is driving them? Yeah. If they're not, if they're doing something they shouldn't do, this is a lie. They're driven by one of these three things. Which is it? Are they getting rich? Are they getting girlfriends? Or are they getting a position of power? Now, you might argue that these folks, well, I think that the position of power you get that just leads you into constantly being beaten and, and persecuted and ultimately martyred is a, is, a, is a kind of a crazy thing to think about, right. and especially if you think about who wrote the most of any of these alleged people who are after power, money, or sex, and I think it might be power. I think Bart Ehrman would probably argue that that's what's driving the authors more than anything else is this power, this this authority they're gaining in a local religious community. But but Paul's the best example. Then he wrote the most scripture in the New Testament. Do we really think he's been? What's driving him? You think he's driven by power? I mean, he had a position of authority and respect before he started this whole mess. I think if anything, he, he I think he's jumping out of that position as a Jew of the highest order, most devout, a great a prodigy of a one of the best teachers, teaching rabbis of that generation, who then decides he's got the authority at this time to, to draw papers to have Christians persecuted, but now he decides to jump out of that position of authority and power and respect and jump in with the Christians where he's just going to suffer for 20 years and get his rear end kicked all over the known world, hoping to someday return to what he started with? That's the claim, really. Um, you know, one of the things we talk about a lot is the difference between what's possible and what's reasonable. And in jury trials, possible doesn't count. It's called speculating when you say, well, what if, you know, we're not allowed to, to do that kind of speculating in jury deliberation. You have to stay with what has been presented to you evidentially, because I can imagine or cast some possible or imaginary doubt about anything. Mm -hmm. Those don't matter. Uh, it's reasonable doubt. That's the standard we're after, because you can never get beyond possible doubt for any claim, right. any claim about anything. And so therefore, we can never prosecute anybody. So, so here, is it possible that these folks were after some kind of fame or sure i always say yes if you ask me if it's something is it's possible, possible. Yeah. i just don't think it's reasonable yeah. and that's why i try to make reasonable decisions not just possible speculations that makes a lot of sense uh, just to kind of switch gears here uh, we've covered a lot of stuff but um Mm -hmm. At some point in the book, you were talking about copyist insertions, and this is another uh, pop yeah. popular 
uh, thing uh, hurled against uh, the Bible, the New Testament is, yeah. well, uh, just to play the devil's advocate role, don't you know that the Bible is a book that has been um, edited over centuries and all these different things are added and taken away from it? So uh, what what is a, a copyist insertion? Are there any in the New Testament, and how does this affect reliability? Yeah, I think the best person to kind of uh, who's uh, most articulately makes this objection is probably Bartman, who yeah. and Jesus interrupted basically he said this is one of the things that he, he decided Christianity wasn't true on the basis of discovering number one we don't have the originals. We don't. If you if I make a claim about the Constitution and you doubt me, you can go back to the uh, archives, National Archives, that big building on the corner in Washington D.C., and you can go down in there and take a look at the actual U.S. Constitution, all of our founding documents. We have the originals, and you can see them for yourself to see if it really says what I'm saying it says. But we don't. He discovered Bart discovered at Moody. Bible Institute that they, we don't have any originals when it comes to the autographs, the original manuscripts of the New Testament. Not a single New Testament document do we have an original. And not only that, we don't have the first copy of the original or the copy of the copy of the copy of the first well, copy. This of is the probably original. one of the, the things that made me doubt as well whenever I was in seminary too. But sorry, yeah, yeah, right? so, sorry to interrupt. Can you, exactly. Yeah. Can you see that? You know, let me just see this real quick. I think. I can share a screen with you, Hayden. Um, okay. Do, do, can we do that on the show? I, yeah, that's fine with me. If it'll work, yeah, go for it. I, I think it will. So, so what, I'm just going to talk to you about. So that was his claim. Uh, I'm, I'm going to open this while while I'm talking to him. I'm going to open my computer yeah. here and open this. Um, so his claim basically was that yeah, we don't have an original. We don't even have early copies. And then when we finally get a copy, it's it's pretty old. I mean, it's it's, it's maybe in the second, third, fourth century. Right. And, and then when we look at the most ancient copies, let's say we have three or four copies of a particular manuscript, uh, and they're all, you know, he would say fourth century copies, so they're pretty old. And he says, then when you take a look at those and you compare them to each other, they aren't exactly the same. They have small one-word differences here or there. Um, and and, he, and it, that, for him, was way too much. I mean, that, that, that was enough for him to say, look— he finds then, he says this in his book, that there are so many thousands of one or two word variations between the oldest manuscripts that he says there are more variations between these manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. That's how he puts it in the book. Hmm. And I think if you look at that, you would say, yeah, that's that's pretty dramatic. And, and that's something that would I think almost anyone who's reasonable about this would say, yeah, that that makes me worry. Right. Uh, that 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 I can't accept that. And that's really where he was. Now, what I'm going to try to do is open up why I think this doesn't really work. And I, and, I, and I do this because of presentations in front of groups. I try to show them. Now, he will admit this. He will say this. The vast majority, 99.9% .9 of these are one or two word variations in which no meaning is challenged. So he would say the identity of Jesus is not under uh, uh, challenge. Nothing about any of these variations it's not as a one side says, oh, Jesus is not divine, didn't rise from the dead, and the other copy says it does. Right. These are small, mostly grammatical differences between. So what I want to do is just show you a couple. And let me just open this. I know, right? So I apologize to all of you who were hoping to see this, but I'll just explain it to you. So he'll he'll talk about how it's it's instead of saying my will or God's will, it might say his will. Right. When it's referring to God all along. A lot of these are small one word changes. Okay, so let's just make that clear. But what he he and, and Bart is correctly showing 
his audience how to identify the variations between manuscripts. But he's not sharing with his audience why translators decide on which one of those words right. to put in their translation. And how I typically illustrate it is this. If I was to text my son uh, a, a, a message, and it's a message about uh, I'm going to bring him some money to help him through college. I'll bring him $5,000 for the rest of the semester. He's, you know, he's at USC. My other son's a doctor. So when he was in med school and I'm going to bring it to you at five o'clock on Wednesday, I'll meet you at Starbucks on Main Street and I will bring you um, $5,000. But let's say that first text to him, I typo it. And the five is a percentage sign. So you cannot tell how much money it is. Mm -hmm. And. And so I text him a second time. Only now I've misspelled Starbucks and the autocorrect has called it starving. And so he's like, now that's incorrect. And I'm a perfectionist, so I do it a third time. And the third time it says, instead of main street, it says main streak. The fourth time I text it, I've now got, you know, instead of sending the money you need, I actually, it, it, it autocorrects and it says nerd. I send him five <laughs> different texts, none of which are correct. Right. But he knows already what I am going to do. He can tell me. He'll, he'll, he knows. Stop. I'm going to meet you on Wednesday at 5 o'clock on Starbucks on Main Street for $5,000. How does he know that when he doesn't even have a single inerrant text? As a matter of fact, if I text him 100 more times and each time I still have an error mm -hmm. in 100 more texts, well, now it could properly be said that I've got more errors, more variance between the text than I have letters right. in the text. But you also Yet have more, thinks, yeah. Yes, but he knows what my intent was. He knows what the original message was, even though it's been typoed. And how he knows is because copies and numbers of copies matter more than numbers of variants. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Is not uh, So as the variants right. increase, but so also do the number of copies you have to that's compare right. it. So it's kind that's of, right. I mean, he's right in saying we, that the this variance. This is how we do this. This yeah. is how we remove the variance to get back to what we believe is a reliable copy of the autograph. Mm -hmm. And and so I think for us, it's about making sure we, when we say inerrancy, we talk about inerrancy, what we're talking about, look, clearly we don't have the autographs. Right. And the copies we have don't match. And although none of these differences have any uh, impact on, on content, and have any impact on the deity of Christ or the, any of the orthodox claims of Christianity, they don't match. So we, we have to say, well, what do you mean by inerrancy? Then? Well, what I mean by inerrancy is, is that we have a process in place that allows us to get back reliably to the inerrant original, which we don't have access to. Um, and that's, that's typically how I will say it if we're talking about inerrancy. Yep, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so Dang, I wish we could have got that to... to, to uh, that would have been nice if we could have got that to work. Would have been nice, but that's all right. Yeah, that's okay. Uh, so, so what we've mostly been talking about, it seems to me anyway, is how the New Testament can be defended, at, or the at least the Gospels can be defended as reliable. But yeah, it's one thing to say they're reliable, and then an, another thing to say divinely inspired. Is right? right? Isn't there a distinction there? Yeah, there is. And so I think when we talk about what, what's divinely inspired, we have to ask ourselves, well, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by what, what, yeah. what, in what way do we, and this, and this has been a discussion within the, within the church and within theologians, amongst theologians for, for some time. And I, I, although I, where I fall today as a Christian is pretty, I, I, I don't want to talk about it because I don't want the non-believer who might be listening to this to think this. It, it, I don't hold a position. Makes sense. By some other theologian, 
Mm-hmm. I only know what was in, important to me as an atheist. Mm-hmm. Okay, now I've now since becoming a, since now that I believe this is true, that allows me to kind of go another step. I got and, you. And talk about these these other concepts. Yeah. But back when I didn't believe it was true, what mattered to me is is it telling me is something it, I can rely on? Is it reliable? Mm-hmm. Right. And issues about well, I didn't know what inerrancy meant. I didn't. I'd right. never even heard of the word in terms of and how to apply it to scripture. I simply needed to know is making claims about Jesus. Are those claims true? Because if dude came out of the grave, I'm gonna probably pay attention to what he says. Right. Well, yeah. That, so I just needed to know: is, is did he come out of the grave? Is that true? That's important for me. That or that's uh, good for me to hear um, your perspective on that because I grew up a Christian, whereas you didn't. So you kind of have uh, that perspective of right. Um, like you, you were making that distinction there about uh, what the what the atheist or what the skeptic will, will, wants to know because you yourself were so. Well, so so let's put it this way: If what God intended, if I mean by inerrancy is, or by being divinely inspired, is if what God intended was for to was to deliver to us a record of the life of His Son, that would be such a record that we could, using our faculties that He's given us, determine if this record is reliable. He did the perfect job right. because He delivered to us documents that we can test and for example the variance between the documents those are to me that was one of the uh, the earmarks of reliability because if you've ever worked eyewitness accounts you know that no eyewitnesses ever agree it could happen two hours ago those would still be a level of variation between the accounts and you're not going to deny it happened two hours ago i could have video and then have their four eyewitness accounts and it's not there's going to be some variation there i have to figure out why the variation is there now, you can say if it's divinely inspired, why would there be any variation at all? Well, do you really think then? It, look, so do you think if we had four identical word-for-word accounts, we'd have more confidence in their reliability? Exactly. No, in fact, what God did was he delivered something to us that is absolutely verifiable or falsifiable using our faculties. And we actually, I can now test these for their reliability. Mm-hmm. If that was the intention, to give me something that I could then know is true, I think this is exactly the way I would do it. So and if that's the, the inspiration that God is. And so I look at it that way. I don't think that inspiration means that we've got to remove and sterilize every possible difference. No, in fact, right. I think it was the inspiration of God that brought him to this this way wow. so that we could test them for their reliability. Yeah, that, that's that's a great that's a great insight. That's a great way of thinking about it. I think, yeah, that's that's pretty interesting. That That's also a, a good place to, to stop. I think. Uh, thanks good. so much. Uh, we covered a lot of ground. This was this was a lot of yeah, fun. It's a good, good conversation. Good, you're doing yeah, I think this is something that those of people who are watching, it's it's like if you realize that each of us as believers, you I bet you, Hayden, you, you see this as an expression of your life as a Christian that you could could not help. Some people would say, well, now I'm a Christian now, so the expression of my life is I must be going to church every Sunday. Mm-hmm. Or they'll find other way to out. But if, if you see it the way I do, which is that now that I'm a believer, the thing you're doing now is the natural out. Uh, expression of of your your belief mm-hmm. um, you can't contain it any other way you're going to do things like this to help other people see it reasonably well that's what I hope more people get to see and that look we, if we can do this using these little microphones we got on Amazon <laughs> and, you know, yeah exactly this little Logitech uh, camera that I got for you know for 60 bucks I mean if we can do this uh, any Christian watching can do something like this and I hope more do yep thanks so much yep thanks for having me I appreciate it yeah 
Hey guys, thanks so much for watching. I hope you enjoyed the show with Jay Warner Wallace. For five more minutes with Jay Warner Wallace, be sure to click the Patreon link below in the description and uh, become a supporter of uh, our ministry um, and you'll get access to all sorts of exclusive um, material over there on our Patreon website. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to click the subscribe uh, button and you'll get um, updates uh, every time we post a new episode. Thanks so much for watching, guys. We'll see you next time.